0: So when I was writing Cemetery Boys, I wanted it to be an accurate depiction of my contemporary Mexican culture, which is a very colonized culture. Like even in Mexico, our main language is Spanish, which is a colonizer language. So it's wild when people get so defensive of using like the term *bruh*ex or Latinx because they're like, you're ruining our, our language. And I was like, it's not even our language to begin with. So let's unpack that first. Because Catholicism and colonialism has such a huge impact on Mexican contemporary culture, especially Mexican-Americans, I wanted that to still be reflected in the story. And so for me, I wanted to be honoring our very long past ancestors while also respecting our current and contemporary relationship to our culture, including the influences that have gone along.
1: Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on ethnic studies. In this series, we explore ethnicity through race, religion, indigeneity, and cultural identity. Examining how the stories of these communities are told and their histories are taught, if at all. Through art, education, scholarship, and activism, our guests fight to have their voices heard, their heritage celebrated, and their contributions to the fabric of American society recognized. In this episode, we connect with author Aidan Thomas, whose book, Cemetery Boys, follows Yadriel, a queer trans Latinx teenager steeped in the magic of their heritage, as he seeks recognition and validation of being a brujo. Here is Aidan Thomas. I want to talk mostly about Cemetery Boys. Okay. Which is your first published book, Cemetery yes, Boys. But it yes. was not the first book you wrote. No, the first book I wrote and sold was Lost in the Neverwoods,
0: which is my um very dark contemporary reimagining of
1: Peter Pan. But Lost in the Neverwoods didn't focus on Latinx characters. No,
0: yeah, so it's interesting because that book is like white and straight as far as like what I've put on page. It's kind of a very important part of my journey through publishing when i was growing up and even when i started writing and was like oh i want to like put a story out into the world what media was telling me uh, was that there was no room or no interest no space for people like me be it you know um being latinx or whether it's queer or you know especially trans (laughs) like those were not stories that were given any space within media And I think that that's just really a reflection of kind of the society that I was raised in and kind of how we're quickly changing. So I was, you know, according to media, characters and stories about people who were like me didn't exist. They didn't have a room for them. So I was like, okay, in order to be able to publish books, I have to make it white and I have to make it accessible in that way when it came time to pitch my option book after we had gone through like editing lost than ever was and then all of a sudden um it's like copy edits time the very like last stage um i started pitching my option books to my editor and one of them was cemetery boys and it was the very last thing in my email i put like five different ideas in the first story i was like i've already written fifty thousand words and like here's the full synopsis and a chapter breakdown and it's funny because like as you're in that email the more you read the ideas got like more and more vague and cemetery boys was my very last idea listed and uh it was just a paragraph long and most of the sentences ended in question marks because what i realized kind of after the fact is like i was asking permission to write a story about a character that was like me i was like ah, i don't know maybe He's queer, like that's something we could talk about. Um, wouldn't it be wild if he was like also Mexican and Cuban, like I am? And like, if we really wanted to like go off the rails, maybe we could make him trans, like fully thinking that this was not the story my editor was going to pick up. And I remember I sent these um pitch ideas to my editor five o'clock West Coast time on a Friday, thinking I was like, it is bedtime over on the East Coast. This is a problem for Monday, Aiden. I don't have to stress about it. And then I think two or three hours later, I got an email back from my editor and she was like, I want Cemetery Boys. And I was absolutely floored and blown away because, again, I had had it so reinforced to me that like these are not stories that are that should be told or that have space or that anyone even wants. Um, So the fact that like I had this editor who was like, yeah, I want that story. It was I mean, it changed. It literally changed my life.
1: were you scared at that moment like i was
0: so scared i was terrified and i was like oh my god um and like when i found out that she wanted it i was like oh my god now i have to actually do this and i was so worried about like doing it wrong or like even though i am queer and i am latinx and i am also trans i was really like i am fully aware that we have our own internalized isms whether it's you know transphobia or homophobia that can end up on the page without me meaning to or even realizing it so i was really scared of just doing the wrong thing which is why um when once i had like a draft ready it was super important it was critical even i would say that i had people had um sensitivity and authenticity readers Read Cemetery Boys, even though these they're I'm like, I need someone who's trans, Latinx, and queer. So even though it's identities that I have, that I have, and that I have grown my whole life with, I wanted to make sure that I was not messing up. Um, so that was a really, really important um, thing for me. And yeah, I was very scared. I just wanted to make sure to, I wanted to do it right. <laughs>
1: it's interesting with with lost in the never boys like this idea of not being able to write your story right there's this this almost like a catch 22 where you have to write for the audience that exists because we don't know if there's this other audience that will respond because there aren't books written for that audience. Totally. So if it, it just keeps spinning out.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Yeah.
1: So when you were growing up, when you would read or do you watch TV or, or you'd watch movies, what characters did you identify with? What, what did you grab onto and say like, Oh yeah, I, I can relate or, you know? Yeah.
0: Um- it's so funny because I was an incredibly reluctant reader when I was a kid, and I don't think I actually read a full book until I was in sixth grade, and it was um, Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones. Yeah, it's like once I found out that I could write that that like fantasy books existed and that they could also be funny, I was like, what? What? Why has my mom been pushing all these problem novels on me that I've been so bored to death with? And I think that that still really like reflects. Who I am as an author today. Cause like I have like these heavier topics, especially like cemetery boys. If I was a 16 year old and you handed me a book and you were like, here's a book about a trans boy who is fighting for his identity and his family doesn't understand him, I'd be like, no thanks. <laughs> like, I'm good. Like, that does not sound like a fun time to me. But if you were like, there's a cute ghost and someone steals a car and like stuff like that, once you like kind of bring in the magic and excitement of it suddenly it is a lot easier and more accessible for young readers to kind of tackle those heavy subjects when we have kind of the fantasy to be able to kind of reassure us and also to like have a joke in the middle of like a really intense um, seeing or a conversation to kind of ease that tension and really kind of help you be able to like access these parts of yourself and your thoughts and your feelings that sometimes you wanna shy away from. Um, so that's always been really important to me as a reader And as I was getting older, like truly the book that changed my life was Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova. And that is a newer book. That one came out, I'm not sure when, definitely after 2010. And I read it right before i started drafting cemetery boys and i was like oh my gosh because it's this whole magic system in this world of um, latinx witches of brujas and i was like oh my god we're allowed to write about this i was like i had no idea and like reading that series um the brooklyn brujas series was totally life-changing for me not only as a reader but as a writer and being like oh we can actually do these stories so it I I get that question a lot, like when's the first time you really saw yourself represented in media, and the truth is, the closest I got was Zoraida Cordova's books, and then after that it was Cemetery Boys, because, you know, there truly wasn't any kind of media that represented me, that I felt like I could be like, oh yeah, this is something I totally relate to, it's always kind of like, Bits and pieces, ish. and not like the whole. Yeah, yeah ish. Yeah. Totally, this is totally. Me-ish, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So, so, what was that experience? I mean, obviously, you wrote it, but then, like, yeah. what was the experience of having Cemetery Boys reflect you, all these facets of you, and then having it be successful? I was in shock, honestly. I truly
0: thought, like, when I was like talking to my uh publishing team, and I was like, "Oh, I want to do like a pre-order campaign. How much stuff should I buy?" They were like. Usually we got like 25 pre-orders and I was like, cool. And so in my brain, I was like, okay, I'm going to sell 25 bucks. (laughs) And if I do that, and just one of those readers is like, I felt seen, I felt connected. I was able to understand a part of myself or celebrate a part of myself that I've never been able to, then I wouldn't have done my job. By the time Cemetery Boys published, I had over 3,000 pre-orders alone, which is, yeah, (laughs) which is An obscene amount and um uh, very quickly i was like oh this is gonna be a bit bigger than i thought it was but like the whole time i was just kind of like doubting myself and i was like maybe this is a fluke meanwhile my like publisher and my agent are like talking to me they're like oh my god aiden might aiden might pull this off aiden might list and i had but everyone was like don't say anything to aiden it'll freak him out which it would have totally but it then it ended up me just kind of like moving through publishing and being like oh i have my first book out and isn't this exciting and then a week later after pub finding out that it hit the indie list and the new york times bestseller list i was floored i was absolutely floored and in shock i never saw it coming um and i am so thankful and appreciative of literally every opportunity that i've been given any kind of accolade or anything like that i am just so happy to be here (laughs)
1: so appreciative of that it it does i mean because it validates you as a writer yeah, but it also validates you and all of these things that you are because yeah. you put them in the book.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's totally wild and it's I think the best part about kind of being in the position that I am is that I get to connect with readers on this really deeply personal level, um on a level where many of them have never been understood by anyone else, especially in their home life, especially people that are physically closest to them, like their families. Oftentimes um, when you're a queer person, especially when you're a marginalized person, the people that you connect with have very little to do with proximity. These are people that you like find online. The first time I saw a trans person was on YouTube. And I felt like, I was like, oh, this person understands me and I connect to this person and they have no idea who I am. I was too scared to comment on any of their videos. They had no idea I even existed, but they were so, so important to me. And so to be able to create a book and have these characters where they are so, so important to these young adults without me even knowing that they exist, without me even knowing their names is I that is such a responsibility that I take so very seriously and I really honor and I'm exceptionally humbled by and it's just the wildest thing like I've had people email me or, you know, message me and be like, you know, this is the first time I saw myself represented and I'm like, hey, same (laughs) Um, or like this book helped me realize that um, I'm queer or that I'm trans and I've had four people that I know of who um, coming into their gender identity chose a name from a character that's in my book, and that is something that is so just absolutely wild. And I feel so honored to be part of that settling into their identity. Um, It's truly mind blowing. It's amazing.
1: (laughs) I mentioned before we, we started our conversation, I definitely can see myself as Enrique Yadriel's father uh where I'm still learning and I think that that line was such a a, a beautiful line and it, and it came fairly early in their relationship story but I am still learning right or or unlearning when I read through your book I I initially thought that you had coined the phrase bruhex oh yeah <laughs> uh so then I went and did research and and then realized you just popularized it and, and yeah. probably are the one who made it the most popular but uh <laughs> I'd love for you to talk about your research into this Bruhex world and like how much you knew before going into the writing and then how much you learned in the development.
0: Yeah, it's so funny um, because whenever I talk about Cemetery Boys and kind of like the magic system that it's in, I feel like I cheated. And that's because like every, the magic system within Cemetery Boys, it's it's the cultural practices that I have grown up with, right? So it's not like I'm not researching it because, like, I have I live it. So the research that really came in was kind of the origins and kind of understanding, like, why do we have these weird little rituals that we do? And, like, figuring out, like, where those things and those practices and those, um, like, superstitions even, like, where those came from. So that was where a lot of the, like, big research came in. And from there, it was just very much, I feel like I got to show off my culture, really. <laughs> like, I got to it's so vibrant and beautiful that it, it was so much fun to be able to kind of like share my favorite parts of my culture with readers and to like build a magic system around it because i kind of just take our beliefs and gave them a very like literal output like for example with marigolds we believe that their sense and their brightness is what helps lead the spirits of our loved ones back to the land of the living for two days and so in the book i was just like yeah the marigolds here they are and here come the spirits <laughs> so um yeah it's it was really just kind of getting to brag about my culture and kind of like share all these things that we believe and things that we do um in a in a kind of like a a very open way and that's always been really fun and the research really came into being like okay so why is it like this (laughs) like where does this actually come from which was fun to learn because i truly didn't know i was just like yeah that's
1: just how it is (laughs) it seems uh even in this Bruhex traditions and beliefs that catholicism plays a a big role um you mean you have santa muerte which is you know the saint of death you know saint death uh and the rosaries uh as the portages my yeah
0: no you did great yeah that was exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so here's one of my my rambling thoughts i have a few thoughts as i was reading like our realizations and so thinking about yadriel's need to prove himself yeah uh, to be accepted as a boy and as a brujo um i was thinking about how in your story, you talk about how the Bruhex traditions predate colonialism mm-hmm. into the the Mayan beliefs. Uh, you have uh, Balam, the, the the jaguar uh, god. You have yeah. uh, Shibalba. Yep, okay, Yeah, he sh- did great. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is the underworld. And then I started thinking about in North American, a lot of, a lot of Native American traditions had this idea of two spirits. Mm-hmm. or that third gender. And I would wonder if that existed in, in those Mayan traditions. And then I bring it back to, you know, like even we have Julian's, say at one point in the hundreds of years of, of Brujos, that there had to have been a trans Bruhex. So then I think, was it the colonialism and that Western, that that Catholicism and mm-hmm. that that that's what kind of put close the door on openness and understanding the, those were thoughts I had I don't know what what your thoughts are but I guess it leads into how, how this uh central and south and in Mexican culture uh view this this two-spirit this third gender this this other or, or really the LGBTQ plus uh community in general
0: yeah, the wild thing is that before colonialism, a lot of cultures were a lot more queer. And that is just almost a universal truth. Um, and you'll see that across across the world. It's not even specific to the Americas. And so when I was writing Cemetery Boys, I wanted it to be an accurate depiction of my contemporary Mexican culture, which is a very colonized culture. Like Even in Mexico, our main language is Spanish, which is a colonizer language. So it's wild when people get so defensive of using like the term Bruhex or Latinx, cause they're like, you're ruining like our, our language. And I was like, it's not even our language to begin with. So let's unpack that first. But so for me, um, because Catholicism and colonialism has such a huge impact on Mexican contemporary culture, especially Mexican Americans, I wanted that to still be reflected in the story and to kind of try to like look at how complex that relationship is. And so for me, I wanted to be honoring our very long past an- ancestors while also respecting our current and contemporary um, relationship to our culture, including the influences that have gone along. And even just like the use of saints is like a hu- huge in my culture. Yeah, so for me, it was like when I'm incorporating this, it's not, I don't see it so much as a religion, which I know sounds so silly when it has such strong Catholic vibes to it. But when I think of saints or even like Santa Muerte, the way that I think about them is like, yes, these are deities that are important to me and my culture and I believe that every culture has their own deities that look out for their people and so for me I was like yes this is my community but like my Latinx community because when I was growing up in Oakland California like that's what my community was it wasn't it wasn't like just the Mexicans only hung out with the Mexicans and only the Cubans hung out with the Cubans like we're this huge uh, community that comes together So I really wanted to make sure that I was um, having space for all of those identities that are within the Latinx community. Yeah, so yeah, it's really complex. (laughs) And so for me, and I get to write a a sequel to Cemetery Boys, which I'm very excited about. And for me, part of that, what I want to touch base on is that colonization and um, how we think about how who our ancestors were and how we connect to them, especially when it comes to things that have been taken away from us, like our like our queerness, I would even say. So it's a lot to unpack and it's a lot to cover. Um, and I don't think, I definitely did not get to everything that I wanted to touch base on in Cemetery Boys, but I only had 400 pages. Um, so I'm hoping I could do a little bit more of a deep dive um, in the sequel, I'm excited for that.
1: I, again I want to touch on some things that I had like oh or like really i I learned in through reading your 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 book or or yeah or just you know thought like wow I didn't think of it that way um and like you mentioned the the term bruhex latinx that there is this this uh backlash about changing the the Spanish language but yeah. you have this line navigating pronouns was a minefield when language is based on gender it's something that You know, as an English speech speaker with just a little bit of Spanish, I would never even think about.
0: Yeah, and it's just true, and like um, that's what makes it so much more difficult, especially for people who identify more as non-binary than to either of the binary pronouns, and what it means to be like fielding that and working on it. And for me, a really important part when I was writing this story was that I got the family dynamics right. because typically, usually up until this point before I started writing Cemetery Boys, when you had a story that was about a trans character, the family had one of these very two extreme reactions. Either they were suddenly in like the snap of the fingers, the perfect allies who knew exactly what to do (laughs) with their trans kid and how to support them, or they completely rejected the kid and the kid gets kicked out. And for me, my personal experience and what I was seeing around me is that it's much more complicated than that, and somewhere more in the middle, where Yaz's family—it's not that they hate him for being trans; it's that they just don't understand him, and what—and isn't that frustrating? Because you you know that your family doesn't hate you because of your identity, but they also don't understand, which can lead to people being like avoiding you or being like, "Well, you know, I'm just trying to like get a hang of it. I'm still learning." and a really important moment for me within writing that book obviously Enrique's character was really important and um for me I wanted his journey to be more focused on like yeah he's not being the perfect dad right now and he and it's but it's just because he doesn't know how to be it's not that he hates y- yads or is like doing this on purpose it's because he doesn't know how to do it the right way so when I was writing this story I wanted to like have examples of the right thing to do and when you do the wrong thing how that impacts a trans person especially someone that you love and care about and a big moment in the book for me is at the very beginning um it's probably like the second chapter yeah where lita accidentally dead names Yadriel, and then continues to misgender him in kind of the same breath and for me the dead name didn't matter I don't write his dead name i don't even know what yad's dead name is because that doesn't matter in that moment what mattered was Yadril's hurt and feelings and reaction to it and that reaction is usually something that not a lot of people see especially family members because trans folks when we see that someone is at least attempting we want to encourage that and we get scared to correct because what if we're like no like that's not my name that's not my pronoun, and then suddenly the family member's like, you know what, I give up, I tried. So it's this really tough area to be like living and existing in, and how do you navigate that? So for me, with writing that scene, what I wanted was to have parents and family members who have trans um, folks in their lives to be like, yes, you think that this is a small slip up, but that small slip up on your end, this is how it feels. And this is the damage that it's doing. Um, And this is the fear that your trans loved one has in order to even confront you about it. So, so yeah, it's so complex and there's so many facets to it that I wanted to have like these multiple examples of like the right thing, the wrong thing, the kind of like you're trying to do right, but it's still wrong.
1: (laughs) There was another moment Well, there were a few moments where, where characters were seeking help and the idea was floated to go to the police. Yes, And was immediately dismissed. Um, and it was something that, you know, I, I I can understand the aggression and the apathy that police uh, offer to communities of color hmm. or immigrant communities. But the one thing that, that I had like, a, oh, I didn't even think about that was the fear of the undocumented. Yes not going to seek help for not only just from the police but from anyone for fear of deportation which was that's that's intense when you're in a country and you can't even ask for help exactly and that's how a lot of really
0: horrible things go under the radar and it's more than just like someone like a big thing like someone who's missing it can be smaller but just as extreme things like um even domestic abuse and stuff like that it's like our people we don't have the safety to be even able to reach out to the people who are supposed to protect us because we have been so vilified as immigrants especially ones that are undocumented so it really puts my people in a a horrible position of choosing safety over having to go back to a country that is incredibly dangerous to them so it's really a picking and choosing of the lesser of the evils um, so that was a really important thing for me to acknowledge because, uh, I mean, just like you said, I think it's something that a lot of people don't even think about or acknowledge because it's so easy to just be like, well, why don't you call the cops? And it's like, well, because I get risk getting like kicked out of my home. That's why. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, that was an important part to bring in and acknowledge.
1: And then there was another thing near the end where I was reading and it was another like, oh, I don't even think about that. but this. <laughs> Mass appropriation of Calaveras oh, Western yeah. <laughs> culture, and you don't, you know, a lot of Westerners or or you know, white Americans love the beauty of and pageantry of Dia de los Muertos, yeah, and adopt it without ever thinking about the the importance of that holiday. Um, totally. Uh, and you see people dress up with their the the candy skull makeup and just have no clue what they're doing uh that was definitely an aha moment reading like oh
0: well and it's and it's funny too because i definitely wanted to touch base on it and um yadriel the thing is that some some mexican folk really don't mind like people like we're like ha yeah like join the party like this is a good thing but to others like it is a very it's a sacred thing um and especially the biggest issue with it is that if you're going to like our culture if you want to like a, like a celebrate or be interested in it be interested in us as people as well not just like this costume that you like to right. do like be invested in us like be supportive of us like it's like it's like you want To be, you want to be able to like have the Latinx like aesthetic, but you don't want to be a Latinx experience, especially of being in America. So it's like you need to be cognizant of both. Like, we would love to welcome you to the party, but you need to understand and support us when we need help.
1: Yeah, it's Um, not just two days, it's not just Cinco de Mayo and Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, it's (laughs) like this is it every day. Uh, exactly,
0: exactly. So I think, yeah, Yads is, is one of the people who are like, no, like, don't touch it because you don't know what you're doing. But there's also a lot of people, a lot of my friends and family, and even I take a more, like, lax view on it. But, like, in general, like, we want to bring people into the party. Like, you know, we are about creating community, but we don't like being used just for our aesthetic. Like, if you want to be invested in us, be invested in us, in us as a
1: community and as a people. Then. This concept of these these throwaway kids, uh, Mm, like Julian and Julian's friends, um, who all fall on the uh, in in the world of LGBTQ plus, but also are from Latinx or immigrant families, uh, who have that 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 double whammy of of. Uh, being marginalized mm-hmm. and have nowhere to call home—is um, that something that is more common to see those those? I don't want to call them throwaway kids, but that's what it feels like. Without home, without school support, without you know anyone looking out for them.
0: I mean, yes, those are disproportionately queer and communities of color, um, and the it's so complicated, right? Because because of their marginalizations they're they are just in a more vulnerable position and you know like for omar his parents were deported but you know he has american residency so he's being looked after one of them has abusive parents who don't care for taking care of him so it's it's this importance of found family which is i would say critical Within the um, queer community, because even though our families are the ones who are maybe rejecting us and not taking care of us, like we seek out people who love us for who we are and who respect us and who will take care of us. So those found families are just as important as the blood families. And so when I was writing Cemetery Boys, I really wanted to show both. I wanted to show a blood family that's maybe not as supportive as you would like it to be in a found family that is everything that you could possibly want and people who love and celebrate you for exactly who you are. So for me, it was really important to kind of show that dichotomy and to show that Um, Julian's family is just as valid as Yadriel's family and is even maybe more loving and understanding than Yad's blood family and like what does that mean it means that community above all else is the most important thing
1: we're going to finish with uh, this has been my eye roll question (laughs) Uh, but I think it is important you know because of where we are and and where we are as a a country in in this Mm. day and age, what does the term American dream mean to you? And then what is your American dream?
0: To me, the American dream is all about finding safety and about finding love. The American dream is about not being able to be afraid and to be able to find a place that's yours and that you feel that you belong in. And I think that that is what everyone regardless of race gender ethnic identity that is what we are all looking for um and for me that's it's the same thing and it's what i'm trying to create with writing these stories is i'm trying to create those communities those safe communities where we feel loved and respected and seen for exactly who we are despite everything else so yeah that's what i think the american dream is
1: (laughs) if you would like to continue the conversation Visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear all of the lectures from this series. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.